The modern voltage-controlled analog synthesizer was born in the 60s, and for forward-thinking musicians, it ushered in an entirely new tonal palette. The piano-style keyboard quickly became the de facto controller for synthesizers, because it was easily adapted as a large row of momentary switches, the perfect controller for a synthesizer. But from the onset of analog synthesis, all types of musicians, not just keyboardists, were anxious to jump on board the electronic sound bandwagon. Early on, there were scattered attempts at using modified percussion instruments to control conventional analog synthesizers. In 1970, Moog created a giant, dedicated prototype drum synthesizer based upon their existing modular synth modules, but it never made it into production. Moog did market a small drum controller pad in the 70s for use with their existing synth line, but they never produced a synthesizer that was optimized for drum and percussion tones. I found out at an early age I was socially inadequate, so I sought refuge in music. I spent my adolescence in my room practicing, but it took DeVoe to teach me to reach the musical center pole. And due to what Mark tells me is a personality gap, now I need DeVoe to supply my needs. Greetings, Sparksketeers. It's your friendly neighborhood podcast host, Christian Huey, yet again with another episode of All You Ever Think About is Sparks. This is episode 27. Most of this episode is a continuation of a conversation that uh, I was having with Monty Mallon about the great album uh, Number One in Heaven. Uh, but this particular part of the conversation and this episode is entirely about the Sparks-produced 1979 disco record Noel is there more to life than dancing after Monty Mallon and I dissect the album we have a bonus interview with Sparks super fan Jim Wellen who had a lot of interesting stuff to add about that record as well so tuck in dance god damn it On Twitter in 2013, Devo co-founder Gerald Casali expressed grief over the passing of his former bandmate, Alan Myers, with these words. Alan Myers, I begged him not to quit Devo. He could not tolerate being replaced by the Fairlight and autocratic machine music. I agreed. They called Myers the human metronome. Twitter user Steve Depati gushed, Alan made any drum kit come alive. He played on my cartoon, Meatballs and Spaghetti, in 82. The best. Alan Myers quit Devo after their 1984 album Shout because he was no longer feeling creatively fulfilled. He would eventually be replaced, coincidentally, by Sparks alum David Kendrick, a friend of this podcast I can proudly boast. So, who is the villain in this reverse John Henry-style fable? The CMI Fairlight was one. In fact, that computer-based tool absolutely dominated the album Shout, as well as myriad pop singles and albums throughout the mid-1980s. But one could make the case that the rise of the machines in terms of pop music percussion and its evidently mortal threat to corporeal drummers really began with the Pollard Syndrome. The Pollard Syndrome, or Syndrome, if you're short on time, was birthed into the world by one Joe Pollard and engineer Mark Barton in 1976. 
Pollard was a session drummer for the Beach Boys and Grassroots and other bands. A major problem Pollard kept running into while playing on tour was his physical exhaustion while pounding on his drums as hard as he could just to make his playing audible over the massively amplified guitar and bass coming over the concert speakers. He decided he needed an electronic drum kit that itself could be amplified. But he had been unsuccessful in developing or discovering an adequate prototype, according to Mark Barton himself. In a 2020 article for Cherry Audio, Joe Pollard had, quote, crisscrossed the U.S. for the last decade, spending more than $10,000, $48,000 today, on airfare, searching for someone who could build him a set of electronic drums. He brought along a set that somebody had made for him, which worked horribly and was totally impractical. They made a blip when struck and would sometimes howl for no reason. When I realized that the main requirement was strike head get tone, I thought it was pretty easy and I told him so. He didn't believe me, but decided to give me a shot at it anyway, giving me four shallow six inch fiberglass drums in which to build. Barton had already constructed his own modular synthesizers a few years beforehand, so he knew all about oscillators, VCOs, VCAs, envelope circuits, and the like. But he didn't want it to sound musical, like a synthesizer, so he opted out of implementing any filters. For his initial prototypes, he used a static triangle wave and square wave with adjustable pitch and decay. Obviously, instead of using a musical keyboard as the controller, he used drum heads. You could play the thing much like you would play an analog acoustic drum kit. Again, strike head, get tone. As Barton writes, there was an 8-inch mounted tom that had a fairly loose head, and when I struck it real hard, I could hear the pitch jump higher and then decay downwards. The thought immediately occurred to me to exaggerate that effect, to make that static tone more drum-like. I went to my modular and patched it up. I thought it was a little cartoony, but definitely worth including as a feature. That was the birth of the swept sound that became the syndrome's signature identity and has been copied in every drum synth ever since. The very first prototypes didn't even have a snare sound, although they would come later. Barton drew up the schematics, fabricated the circuit boards, and used the drum heads that Pollard had constructed. When he finished the four identical prototypes, he handed them over to Pollard, who immediately called up the biggest names in rock and roll drumming he knew, Ringo Starr included to bang about on the new kits. Barton had christened the thing the Syndrome, and if you'll pardon the pun, it was a hit. Eventually, they manufactured three major types of kits, the Syndrome 1, the Syndrome Twin Drum, and the Syndrome Quad, the last being the most famous. Granted, switching from acoustic to electronic wasn't intuitive for all of Pollard and Barton's customers. Barton muses he had to field customer support calls where he needed to remind the user to turn on the amplifier. What amplifier? But within a couple of years, the syndrome was everywhere. Zappa was using it. Well, his drummer, Terry Basio, really. The Cars, ELP, Yellow Magic Orchestra, an obscure pop duo called Sparks. Everywhere. 
As a rock fan, Barton and Pollard were hoping progressive rock groups would be especially enamored with the syndrome. But much to Barton's chagrin, it was disco that made the syndrome ubiquitous. But other forward-thinking music acts outside the realm of disco gleefully incorporated the syndrome into their sound as well, including Devo and, yes, the late, great Alan Myers. Duty now for the future, Alan. Uh, Sparks were involved in a couple of production effort. They produced a couple of other records um, in the middle of uh, promoting this record. They weren't touring, so they had some time on their hands. Uh, one of those was honestly kind of a throwaway. Uh, there was a composer named Adrian Munzee who <laughs> recruited them to do a parody of Sheik's Le Freak. It was called C'est Sheep. I have a link to that. It is the song Le Freak with a bunch of bleeding sheep. This is a real thing that Sparks did. Sparks was involved with that? Yes. Well, they have a sense of humor. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, but beyond that, of course, and and you know that this is something that I wanted to uh, get into as well, is uh, the album um, by Noel. Uh, per- Patricia Noel, as it turns out, was her name. So uh, I had a hard time finding a whole lot of information about her, uh, the person. Um, as far as the creation of the album... Uh, I went onto YouTube and there's a guy named Soren Jensen who posted some great stuff. And he said this, uh, they teamed up, Sparks teamed up with Georgia Moroder in late 1978 to produce blah, blah, blah. We know that. Um, let's see here. Uh, they met up, uh, it was uh, Virgin, um, introduced them to Patricia Noel, an L.A singer in uh, early 1979 to make a straightforward disco album. They started with the single I Want a Man that was released first in Germany in May 1979. Uh, But in the UK, they opted for the B-side of that single, Dancing is Dangerous, which became, of course, bigger in mid-June. The album hit the stores in August 1979. There was another single, The Night They Invented Love, released in September, Nothing Charted. Uh, in the U.S., only the single Dancing is Dangerous was released. There was no full album. Uh, Noel, again, couldn't find really anything about her. A few years later, did form a group and made another new wave album after that called Peer Pressure. But I wanted to take a moment to get into this album because it's interesting to me. What do you think? Yeah. Oh, I, 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 the reason I even knew about it was because uh, I'm looking for it. But on when I was in the record store in Boston, there was a copy of the album, and it was marked Sparks across the front. Mm. Little st- and I said, "Oh, I didn't know. I have no idea what this is." And then I looked at it, and it was actually someone named Noel. And I said, "Okay, let's let's hear this." And I fell in love with it the first time I heard "Dancing Is Dangerous." Blasted it from the speakers. My roommate had heard it independently, and we we, we were just amazed that we both had heard it about the same time. And we, I, thought, I loved it 
and explored the album. I thought, I think it's a, a great piece of work. Yeah. It's not bad. Um, her look, not very much like the disco divas at the time. She looked like a real new waver kind of like post-punk sort of chick to me. More like uh, Debbie Harry, I think, than like Donna Summer. I thought that was an interesting. I think that's true, look. which is in- an interesting point because it's it's much more straight disco, I think, yeah. than number one in heaven. She's, she's not, you know, presented – and I don't mean this to sound any way uh, except how I'm saying it. She's not presented as a blazing beauty. You know, they mm-hmm. didn't, they didn't, they didn't go that route. They presented her and she looks like who she is. And honest, I'm not saying she's not an attractive. I, I can see myself getting in lots of trouble here. I'm not trying to. I, I think you're fine. I don't think anyone's going to be adding you for Patricia. Yeah. Noel. Yeah. But I mean, presentationally, they didn't go out of their way to present her. In in a, in a way that a lot of the disco divas were being presented at the time. How about if I put it that way? And uh, I think that added to the charm of it, and it made it like this is a person who's not a disco diva who's singing these really great songs that are a lot of fun to dance to. And I think disco dancing is dangerous. I think that has held up. When I heard it, I played it, and my wife and I danced to it a, a few weeks ago when I was getting ready for the show. Uh, yes. It's just a fun song to dance to. Do you think she's mimicking Russ's voice? I I don't, but at the time, a lot of people were saying, oh, yeah, well, that's that's Russell singing. And they created this persona. Yeah. Yeah, well, which I found kind of insulting, to tell you yeah. the truth, because that, that's not what his voice really sounds like. No, I, I didn't get that. Did you get that? No, not at all. I mean, I... Well, you know, when you listen to the album, you're primed with Sparks' knowledge and you're primed with the sound of Russell's voice. So you're listening for it. And, uh, you know, maybe a couple of moments, but not really. What what I really got from it was that Sparks were writing an album for a woman singer, you know, disco or not or whatever. And, and they do write in her voice, you know, in the in the songs that, that you hear. Nah, uh, yeah. Obviously, she's not Russell. No, I don't think she's Russell. Um, but she's good. She's really good. She wails on a couple parts of this. She song. really does. Really does. I was really impressed. Uh, a, a couple of things, because, by the way, if you haven't noticed, I'm transitioning in, into the talk of this album now. Uh one thing that, that I noticed from listening to the entire album was that, um, A, it, it sounds like uh, Ron and Russell are trying to take the lessons that they learned from Giorgio and trying to strike out on their own to see if they can do it on their own. The musical lessons. Uh, I don't know what instruments they had. I can't find that information absolutely anywhere. It does sound similar to the same synth that they were using a number one on heaven, but those things were huge and those things were expensive and who knows if they actually, you know, had that available to them. Um, but beyond that, and this is something you're not going to hear in, in number one heaven, there, there, there are some instrumentation that's novel to sparks for sure. You've got bongos must be live bongos on at least one track. And then there is this incredible on side B saxophone that uh, stretches throughout this suite of 
two songs uh, on side B, which is like, where did that come from? Where did they find this? I, I, I don't know if you're you know, uh, familiar with what I'm talking about, but that thing really stands out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I think you made, you know, your point about them taking the lessons that they learned with Giorgio and starting to apply it themselves is, is spot on, you know, you, you know, and I think that that probably influenced the album that followed this one, but I don't oh, want to get ahead of our narrative a little bit, but sure. I, I definitely hear that as well. What I, what I started thinking about when, uh, you know, over the last few days when I was looking at all this is, you know, the, the, the only personnel that's listed besides the photographer and Ron and Russ is an engineer by the name of Bob Stone. There's no long list of all the people who are involved. Where so I looked at number one in heaven. There's no Bob Stone there, so they didn't use Giorgio's guys. You know, they mm-hmm. they found who I have no idea who Bob Stone is. He could have been somebody who worked for Giorgio, but he didn't. It's it's not a Giorgio Moroder album. It's just what you said. It's a it's something where they took their influence and started to put it and to see what they could do with this. Yeah, now, there's an analogy to the '80s where they started to use synths halfway through the eighties. And then you could see their skills with that and their musical vision evolving over time. So here, here was a step in that direction. Would you believe that um, when this album was released in the summer of 1979, uh, billboard actually had this to say uh, dancing is, Oh, here it is. Let's see this white heat disco single. That's about the single dancing is dangerous makes John Travolta look like King Kong and Olivia Newton. John sound like a reject muffin. It precedes her brand new album by just one month. So apparently there was at least some excitement from billboard for a, a, just a flash. About wow. That. Yeah. Those, are, those are pretty big words. I know. Right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it was uh, much, 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 much later. The album released on CD in 2018, uh, which I came across. Um, so, if you don't mind, uh, yeah, I want to talk just a little bit um, about the album. There are five tracks. It's it's a disco album, right? But it's also um, it's what I've heard some Giorgio fans call a hard disco album, meaning that it's electronic and doesn't use a whole lot of um, you know, normal uh, uh, acoustic in- instrumentation. Uh, so the, the 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 big single was "Dancing Is Dangerous." I'm going to read those lyrics. We'll never see daylight again. Once started, it's on till the end. We've tried, but we can't break away. As we dance, dance to the music, dancing and dancing. First step, you forget where you are. Next step, you forget who you are. I've tried, but I can't break away. As I dance dance to the music, dancing, dancing, dancing is dangerous, gently embraces us. And then it won't let go till the end of our days. Tell me, is there a life out there? This seems like a dream or a dare. Try leaving. You won't get away as you dance to the music, etc. We'll never see daylight again. Once started, it's on till the end. I've tried, but I can't break away as I, again, dance, dance to the music, dancing, dancing, Dancing is dangerous, gently embraces us, and then it won't let go till the end of our days. Mm-hmm. 
there anything to look at there? Yeah, they were clearly trying to put it more into a straight disco context. Yeah. No question about it. And and the lyrics are they're not Shakespeare, but they're they're fun. Yeah, they're, they're fun. fun. They're not only fun, I, I, I would say, but I think it's also uh, coming at disco lyrics from a different vantage. Uh, dancing so. is dangerous. I mean, you're you're not gonna, you're not going to hear that, you know, in uh, a uh, you know uh, BGs of the era or um, Casey and the Sunshine Band. Uh, there's what I appreciate is that there seems to be in these lyrics, some sort of a, I don't know, fear, apprehension of whatever this is, this dancing disco culture. And there is also in the lyrics, maybe a fear of being consumed by it. It seems a little more paranoid than many disco lyrics of the time, I I would say. And I think that's what Ron put into this. That's a little bit of Ron right there. In my okay. Opinion. Okay. Yeah. That's what I, 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 I never saw it quite that way. I saw it as just a turn of a phrase. Um, it's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, then it gets into gently embraces us, won't let go to the end of our days. It won't let go till the end of your days. It will not let you go. Right. Now, the words are great. Uh, but, you know, um, I, I, I saw them as a little more straightforward than you did, but that's okay. Different perspective. Uh, so, what I like about the first side. Is uh, and and of course I, I realize you know it's a it's a disco album a disco LP these songs go on forever and ever and ever, uh, but I like the, the 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 first side is comprised of, of of two songs and one segues smoothly into the second one and the second one is is there more to life than dancing, and I liked that um, for you know for many reasons I'll go into the lyrics in j- just a moment. Uh, but the, from my perspective, the, the narrator from the first song is still in this song and this dancing or the disco culture or, or, or whatever, the drugs, the sex, who knows, has taken its toll. He's having trouble functioning in the real world. He's literally hallucinating. I'll I'll get to that. And like an addict, he knows he needs to quit or cut back, but he can't overcome the seduction of it all. And then at the end, he gives up trying to break free by thinking, I'm going to dance till it goes away, or rather she does. And, and, and to try to convince you, I'm going to read the lyrics. Hey, go for it. Go for it. Right. So is there – oh, uh, by the way, I don't know how long it's been since you've listened to the song. I've I, I listened to this several times today. But there's a, there's a male singer who's chanting – is there more to life than dancing? Is there more to life? And I swear it sounds like Ron. I would love to know who's doing it. So uh, is there more to life than, than dancing? Is there more to life? Is there more to life than dancing? Is there more to life? And it goes on. I got my share of dancing. I'm pretty good now. That's what they say. But could it be that I've overdone it? I've danced my mind away. Last night, I'm on the dance floor. As I was starting to hit my stride, I heard a voice cutting through the music. I thought it must be a kid outside. Is there more to life than dancing? Is there more to life? And it goes on like that. Ten times I heard that calling. I said, hey, Sheila, what was that? Great run line. Love that. 
She said, you fool, you ain't hearing nothing. I said, it ain't quite as easy as that. I went to see my doctor. He said, it's only a case of nerves. He said, I'll see you tonight and cure you. I said, now that would just make it worse. Is there more to life than dancing? I got my share of dancing. I'm pretty good now. That's what they say. But could it be that I've overdone it? That I've danced my mind away? Worse things could probably happen. Exactly what I couldn't say. I'm going to dance till it goes away. I'm going to dance till it fades away. And then it repeats the chorus several times. Now, those are lyrics. Right. Those are lyrics. I, I will hear lyrics, them. right? Like, you don't really pay attention to that the first time you might you might hear that.
that that leaves me speechless a little bit. Yeah, the, those lyrics, and that that does have a couple dimensions to it. Yeah, and yeah. so that plays as a as a single suite of music that goes on for like seventeen or so minutes on side A. So the first part is dancing is dangerous. It gently embraces us. It gets yeah. the guy involved. He's a dance dance demon, and then he starts to question it. But in the end. He's just a dancer. So it's like dancing is dangerous. Maybe I shouldn't do this, and then no, I've done this, and I can't get out. Yeah, is is my read. That's um, a good one. So uh, side side B, we've got uh, it's it's a brief album, of course. Uh, in, in terms of a uh, track listing, there are only five songs on side B. We have three songs, um, and there is a, a suite again, a two song suite. There is the night they invented love. I don't know if you've listened to that recently. And uh, I'm going to read those lyrics. Long before there were diamond rings, long before there were lions, long before there were songs to sing, someone felt a desire. And then, ooh, someone noticed someone. And then, ooh, someone needed someone. And then, ooh, someone felt a way they never felt before. The night they invented love, the night they invented love. In the world, we'd have kings and queens long before there was moonlight. Men and women were only things, things that shook in the twilight. Someone noticed someone, and then ooh, someone needed someone, and then ooh, someone felt the way they never felt before the night they invented love. We can do it again, my love. We can be in the prizing. We can say it's from up above. I'll pretend you're surprising me the night they invented love. The night beat then goes on with that.
on its surface doesn't seem terribly deep. Yeah, it's it's. It, I love hearing your commentary about it, though. And I, I was well, not all that familiar with the lyrics, to tell you the truth. I don't. So, uh, yeah, what, it's kind of revelatory this, to listen to it. I found this on on Root's uh, website, Root Swart. He had all of this. So so hats off to Root Swart. Thank you. Uh, so I, I wrote down my, my personal thoughts. Uh, lyrically, I didn't have a whole lot to say here quite yet. But uh, musically, you've got bongos playing, and of course, that I just I, I just want to know, like, who did Ron and Russell recruit to play these bongos? And they do a great job. And of course, the most unsparksian thing, uh, musical element in this uh, entire endeavor, is the saxophone. This really sort of like Kenny G ish, proto Kenny G, almost like you know, uh, 80s Cinemax soft core porn saxophone is playing throughout the song, but it does it beautifully. And it also segues from the, the first song on that side to the next, which is really interesting. Another thing I wanted to bring up, and I, ch- I challenge you to listen to the song and then listen to the next song I'm going to talk about afterward. The synth, there are synth horns in the song and it sounds a lot like what you hear in the calm before the storm from 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have m- anything more to say about that, except that I, that's, I, I heard that. And I'd love to play them back to back. Let's see. Uh, what else do I have here? Oh, I just said something about the fact that it seemed like the lyrics seemed like somewhere between Roxy Music's Love is the Drug and Talking Heads' Uh-oh, Love Comes to Town. Um. It segues into the next song, which is called Au Revoir. Au Revoir. I'll never say it right. And um, this is a fun little song that reminded me a bit of a little bit of La Dolce Vita in that I think that they're borrowing uh, – some amount of glamour from another European culture or language or something. Musically, it kind of sounds like my other voice. It's subdued. Uh, it's just a, a, a goodbye song. I'll read the lyrics real quickly. Au revoir, what a way to say it. Au revoir, wonder who created au revoir. Au revoir, my baby. Right to the point in... And I have a question mark here because I can't make out the words she's saying at that point. Does that hurt so badly? Right to the point in, I always loved you madly. Au revoir. Is she really better? Au revoir. And do I ever matter? Au revoir. Au revoir, my baby. Tell me another way. Is she that great at something? Tell me another way and then I'll leave with nothing. Au revoir. It's so easy saying au revoir. Uh, lies ain't very pleasing. Au revoir, my baby. Right to the point, does it hurt so madly? Right to the point, I always love you so madly. And then there are a bunch of ooze after that. <laughs>
The uh, final song, the fifth song on the album is I Want a Man. And I Want a Man is actually the first single that was released. It was released in Germany, West Germany at that time. Um, I really, really like this song. The lyrics, there's nothing to talk about. It's I Want a Man, I Want a Man, I Want a Man, I Want a Man, whatever. Uh, but musically, it's really interesting. There's a really, really cool uh, synth bass line that's laid down there that works as a counterpoint to the synth lead and to my ears points the way toward some of the sounds that they would indulge in in Terminal Jive and then beyond that. Uh, I also think that it was maybe written just to let Noel, Patricia Noel, have a chance to really show off her pipes because she really does it in this song. Uh, this song sounds to me less like disco and a little bit more like new wave. And I encourage everyone um, to hear it. And so I, I've been letting you riff on this cause you're, yeah. uh, you've really been paying attention to this album, but I do have a couple thoughts. And Please. one, I agree with you completely. I want a man. That's a really good song and it sticks together. And I think when I hear the songs that are the, the single versions of some of these songs, or, you know, when they're a little bit tighter, you know, that's where I think they stick together a little bit better. I, I don't have a lot of patience for these, you know, 10-minute, uh, 12-minute versions that they do on the extended mixes and all that. It's yeah. just too much. But when you get it even down to just a few minutes and you really hear it, in this case, different from the other album, in this case, I think it works better. This one is a pretty tight four-and-a-half-minute song, and I agree with you. It is it is a really good song.
it's it's you know it was really great hearing you say the lyrics because while some of them weren't you know things you're gonna you know hold with you dear to your heart your entire life you're you're, you're hearing the lyrics to uh, is there more to life than dancing was kind of revelatory because that really put it into context with the first song and it put it all together and that that makes it something I'm going to go back to and definitely give another chance to. They're sketching some ideas out here. And they're trying to flex some muscles, I think, that they just found, and uh, and and I and I, I definitely do appreciate that. Uh, I agree with you, um, and that the songs would work better if they were more pop song length uh, than they are here. As a dis- because uh, it, it, it's a funny thing that I think Ron and Russell are trying to do here. Uh, I mean, they're they're endeavoring to make a disco, like a real disco album that's meant to be played on the dance floor. But they also want people to pay attention to the lyrics and to the subtleties of what's going on with the instrumentation. And that doesn't lend itself very well to the dance floor. So it's almost like they're trying to have it both ways, and I'm not sure it totally works. I like the album. I enjoyed listening, listening to it many times today. I didn't notice that the songs were like eight or nine minutes a piece. But I think if I were really paying attention to it, it would, you know, start to great. Yeah. And, you know, and part of it, what I'm saying is it could be just my perspective as somebody who's just not immersed in the disco culture, you know, I mean, somebody else may hear this and just think it's perfect the way it is for me though. It, I would, I think the songs get a little repetitive, bring back some of the themes over and over and over. Uh, but it is what it is, and it's a pretty cool part of the uh, Sparks canon. I'm, I'm glad it, it's there. That's it, you know, and Dancing is Dangerous, great song. It is agreed. Agreed. Gosh, uh, man, I don't know if I've got much uh, more here uh, that I've written out here on my notes on my agenda uh, because um, the last thing last thing that, that I have here is that the final UK uh, single was uh tryouts for the human race in october and then not long after that you've got terminal drive yeah and that's a whole other we're gonna, gonna get a chance to talk about that too that's gonna be an interesting one to talk to because it's such a change in so many ways and uh it'll be interesting to to talk about why that happened and how that happened and there's i i know some of this history and and i know you do so it'll be that'll be an interesting discussion yeah. So can I use this as an opportunity to give a little reassurance? Because I promise that. <laughs> uh, if, if you have me back. Um, you know it. Yeah. I'm not so crazy about, re- about the next album, but I want to reassure people that I love the 80s albums. So I'm, I'm not going to be going negative all through the 80s. Because I know a lot of people are like, oh, the 80s albums. I love the 80s Oh, albums. no. Come on. Oh, no. All right. Well, there's plenty of time, plenty of time to talk three. about this. First Obviously, three. yeah. When when you had uh, David Kendrick, uh, his era, mm, God, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and spoiler alert, I consider, um, oh, what's it called? I can't believe I'm having this one. Shoot. Give me what, what uh, a, give me a hint. An eighties album. 
Uh, want that sucker? No. Uh, Angst in my pants. It sparks in outer space. Sparks in outer space. And there's uh, music uh, you can dance the puppets. To. Music and dance too. Okay. Music you can dance to. I, I don't know what happened there. Um, I, I do it all the time. I'm going to have to shoot myself. But uh, I consider music that you can dance to one of their all time classic albums. Really? And I know there is a grand total of close to zero people who agree with me. On I this. cannot wait to hear you expound on that. I can't wait and, to and maybe make me a convert. I haven't made anybody a convert yet. Well, let me ask you this because here's uh, the, so there's 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 two versions of that album, and yeah. each one of them. Well, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but each each one of them o- omit important songs. Yeah. You don't so, want to skip ahead seven albums. Yeah, exactly. We'll get to it when we get there. Anyway. No, go ahead. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, so uh, let's see. So one of them. So I think either the European or the U.S. doesn't have change. I think that the European one, I believe, did not. Right, and then there's another one that doesn't have Armies of the Night. Armies of the Night, and I I love Armies of the Night. Um, And I didn't know how much I loved Armies of the Night until I realized that it was about a novel by Norman Mailer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was and, part of the soundtrack of the movie that you mentioned, wasn't it? The sure Night. Was. That's yeah. ex- exactly right. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, that's a good song. Yeah, man. Oh, this right. has been great. Hey, Monty, I really appreciate having this conversation uh, with you. I think this is going to go over uh, really, really well, and we're going to do it much, much more in the, in the future. All right, man. What else is there to say? <laughs> we'll find out next time. All right, man. All right. You have a good night, Monty. You too. Talk to you soon. Hey, Jim. Mr. Huey. Hey, Mr. Wellen. Uh, Jim Wellen. I'm doing good, man. Doing doing real good. How are you today? No, I'm coming. God, you got it, man. Yeah. Hey, uh, no worries. I'm just from Italian. So, uh, yeah, Noel, all right? Um, The album. It, it's like a black box. I can't find a whole lot of information about it. I've listened to it. I've listened to it. I've tried to find information about you know who's on it, who's playing, what instruments are there, who is Patricia Noel. So I guess I'm just going to start this off with just a very broad, you know, <laughs> open-ended question. I think what? I got all the answers. I love we're it. I'm not going to get these answers ever answered, but I think I came up with all the answers. Okay. And I think they're scared because I do. I know where the black box is, I think. Let's see how close I am to it. All right. Uh, who is Patricia Noel? I can't find anything about her. Well, I don't think it's... I didn't even know that she uh, had a name. First of all, I believe Noel... She did have an um, album after this as the band, as the girl named Noel. 
um, which was called the Red Wedge or something. Mm-hmm. It's got a husky voice when we get into. I believe that, it, well, this is all a Ron and Russell. Is Noel, did they give her the name and just let's take M and the next letter is N and do and instead of M A E L, we'll do N O E L. Male, no, I don't know. But uh, here's where I get, okay. 78, they record this damn number one in heaven with mm-hmm. Gorgio Moroder. Mm-hmm. And they're under contract with Gorgio Moroder. And all this stuff is due to Ron and Russell. And oh, this is recorded, but now we're under contract. They got this, they got this whole sense of new music in their hands and going through, but they can't release it. So what they do in 79, if they wrote this, uh, I believe, yeah, what, who's playing the drums on this? It's, I'm gonna say, is it one of them? It's not great drums, it's not a key forcing drums, it's basically straight ahead. I believe everything's produced, everything's controlled by them, everything's written by them, and there's very limited vocals that Noel does on this album, which they probably, did the whole damn package in this album, use her as a name to cover up that they're not putting out their own album, keep out the contract, and again, this is 79, what's called just getting off the shelves a year before. And uh, it, was this just totally done with them? Now, there's a sax player on this. Yes. There's a part of a Thank you. Conga players yes. that on this. Who are they, but everything else, is it just them? And was it just basically done? Because all these background vocals and everything that blush that they learned, that's all Russell. And they, I think she just plugged in. And I'll go song by song what I have if you want to do it that way and say, all right, here's my belief and this is what she inputted, but everything else is just, it's, it's a sports album, more than any sports album. So a couple things. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So a couple things. One, you know, there is there is a conspiracy theory floating out there that it's really just Russell singing uh, on the album lead. I don't I don't buy that. I think she's got her own thing. No, no, no. It's a, she's in here. You can hear she's got yeah. a very rough voice. Because if you go to the, uh, the other album that was released in 79, I think it was 81 or 82, I should have grabbed it. It's up on my thing, the uh, Red Wed album that she does sing with a band. Right. You know, so you can hear her. The name was obviously given to him by Ron and Russell Mail. She was backed down. She's got a great voice. And I broke it down and I got everything that she sung. If you want to do song by song, and I'll say what, what Russell did, what was sure. and what her vocals are. Yeah. I have all her I have everything that she did, I believe, on this. Yeah, well, where do you we'll, want to start? Yeah, we'll, 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 yeah, well, let's let's get to that track by track, uh, certainly. Uh, I, so I just wanted to pick your brain about how this record got made, who was involved. I, I know there's some confusion about who exactly was involved. Maybe it was all Ron and Russ. I don't know. Keith Forsey probably not it's playing the drums. Ron and Russ, other than Bob Stone, who did the engineering on this. Bob track. Stone did the. Oh, that's right. I read that. Yes. Um, so, so yeah. whoever Bob Stone is, you know. I looked him up and I, I reached out to him. Secret Dark Cavern, dude. Uh, so done in a secret dark cabin with them experimenting with all of this, and I think they just brought her in to do these songs. I mean, if you want to start with Danger, 
dancing is dangerous. Yeah. I'll break it down and go into the. Let's, yeah, yeah. let's start here. And uh, I'm going to give you my head on this, and then I'll let you follow up. Okay, dancing is sure. dangerous. So you're going to start this song, and Russell's coming in with all the background balls. Now, the first vocal you hear is Russell. That is Russell. Mm hmm doing all the basic lines on this song. Now, Noel, again, comes in and sings, dancing is dangerous. But that's also, that's the only thing that they got her singing. It's like, did they got her singing this one time and just keep repeating this in the studio with what they have, or I don't know. But mm. it's also, when she's doing that, Russell is double tracking and just like rapping because her voice is rough, and this just goes off in a beauty lot of spots where that is Russell just guiding her. So the only thing she does on that first song is sings the lyric, Dancing is Dangerous. Russell's backing around all the background vocals is Russell and Overland. And is there more than life than dancing? That's the next song. And so let's, let's take mm -hmm. it there. And the only yeah. line of the song that she really does is dancing is dangerous over and over and over, and everything else is sparks. Okay. All right. Okay. So uh, when you say everything else is sparks, what, what do you mean? Like she's laying down maybe one little well, vocal line? I mean, all the keyboards are done. It's all the written. All the production is done. I mean, who's playing this drum? It's not a string. It's not a top. Would keyboard. love to know. Is it Russell? Is it Monsters playing the straight edge? Because obviously they didn't have that drum. What do you call that thing at this point? But it was syndrome, just I believe. It's just a bass. I don't know what do they call that. I'm not a yeah. musician. Two on the floor, or whatever they call that disco beat. The same. Yeah, time. four on the floor. Yeah, basic. and I think it's all done. Song one's all done by them with having her just just coming in with that that uh, line. Wow, cool. Uh, so, do do you know anything about like where they were? I mean, I assume it was L.A. where they recorded it, and they had to. That's yeah. where they did it. They had it. They had to because she showed up. Pretty sure because here's the only thing you know. You didn't pay attention. Like I said, this was the time when I was getting into them and I was getting part of the fan club and you saw hey the mom put out oh Ron Russell working with this Los Angeles singer called L.L. doing an album right he didn't even think of it in fact I never even thought of this until I got those Japanese uh, CDs um, in 2010 and it had the, um, the those that had side one Dancing the Dangerous and there's a more than like dancing as far as I on the number one in heaven album and it was like okay you let me go research this album and as soon as i heard it I said oh yeah this is sparks playing playing the probably best uh, gag on us so dancing is dangerous uh that was uh i mean it, they released it as a single it wasn't the first single i found out actually the first single was i want a man that they released i guess somewhere in europe is that right you know what's funny is I'm looking at all, I had every single, as we're talking, I had every different release single, even Japanese, of where they released them. And yeah, they did three, I, I got three, I want a man. Yeah. I have one, 
the nightgown down at the mall. That was a single? And I had to meet dancing with James Yeah. No yeah, kidding. Oh. I said sing it the pictures. In fact, uh, there's a Japanese one here. There's a, there's, so there's three dancing stages. I've got a U.S., I've got a U.K., and a Japanese one on that one. Uh, this one, I think, is maybe... Yeah, the Michael Mabalad is that German, and then the three dancing is dangerous, and this German, German, uh, Italy, I think. And hmm. So, dancing is okay. So, France. okay. So France, so France, France, yeah. The three, I want to help them out. And they did release two 12 inches. They did the German, I Want a, I want a Man, and uh, the UK, actually the US, US Dancing is Dangerous. I've got a question. I don't know if you know the answer. So, um, so in uh, Is There More to Life Than Dancing, uh, the song, you know, there's this like male voice chanting, Is there more to life than dancing? Is there more to life? I swear oh, I think that's wrong. That? You want to start there? Sure. Oh, we, can, we can go back you to dancing is dangerous. Oh, no. We can go back to There's dancing. Word for me, you know? I'm an old man. Okay. <laughs> no problem. You... I know where you're going with that. All right. I don't want to jump in. I want to. We can take our time. You used to call it 84, and Russell called it the Sparks Bang. I want you to do the Christian Jew thing. Uh, you want to jump in just like that with this? Sure, why not? But do I believe still in it. Uh, yeah, let's I hit that. I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong. It's wrong. I think it's wrong too. Okay. Well, there you go. So that's two two votes for it's wrong. Come on, this is a start yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The dancing is immortalized. Was there anything? Well, and he can sometimes. Um, yeah. Well, he can sometimes. I mean, just the other day, I was listening to some outtakes from, and we're shooting way ahead here, but uh, from um, Gratuitous Saxon and, uh, and Census Violins. Yeah, he had some, uh, there, there were some outtakes. Uh, Transatlantic or Midland? This, I think, is the most Noel song on here because not only does she do the vocals, but uh, then when the first woman that comes in, is there more to like the dancing? As far as the woman, I believe that's her too. But okay. then again, Russell is just doing all the background vocals. Where then, where the uh, line goes, you gotta get there, beat. You gotta get there, beat. That's all Russell. That's all overdubbing. Mm. So they gave her the line, and they did give her some. Uh, course to work on that song but again everything else <laughs> yeah i believe it's ron singing there with russell and but she does the vocals and uh and that first chorus but again it's all wrapped up with russell did you have more to, so to one. oh yeah sure man uh, is there more you wanted to say about dancing is dangerous which was the of course the the big single no i mean that's all it is i mean you've got a vocal fade out and it's that's basically all Russell on the vocals other than her just dancing the dangerous line over and over and over. One thing that I think is really interesting... Sorry, man. Uh, one thing that I think is really interesting about this album is that 
certainly, you know, different from other Sparks albums, it sounds like a, a DJ mix. Where it's like, it's just meant to, like, you put it down, uh, you put the needle down, people are on the dance floor, you've got one song segueing to another song, the beat never stops. It's, you know, it's consciously, it sounds like it's consciously made to be a disco floor album record, as opposed to what they usually do. I got a, okay, so you're a lot younger than me, so you weren't around at this time. I was about I'm just born. As, so I'm looking at this on the opposite end of where I'm way listening to music 20 years before this and said, maybe this is the album that created that format that you're thinking of. How about that? Now there's some heavy crap. That is. <laughs> I didn't think about it that way. That that, that could this, be. Yeah. Now this is the yeah because because number one I haven't had it going into my boys and it was never really done other than that or as far as a disco format. Surely we look at the Osmonds the plan, but which fades in and fades out. But here this is more of a disco beat, and I'd love to break that down when we hit side two mm-hmm. because I do have a lot of notes with. Um, when the sax and the uh, keyboard players go in from uh, the night they invented golf, is it Arribor? Mm-hmm. Or is it Arribor? Did you ever hear this on the radio? Uh, uh, da- Dancing is Dangerous? I listen to the radio back then. Huh. Didn't listen to the radio. My radio was whatever I wanted to play. Right on, right on. Uh, so you want to move on to... to want to uh, move on to the night they invented love. You said you had some deets on all, all right. these songs. All right, let's flip this up. First of all, who is this Conga player? Obviously, this has to be a real sax because the fade outs and that goes in through this song and also the next one, Are We Born? Yes. And a, mm-hmm. on this one, The Night They Invented Love, uh, Noelle was just doing the lyrics only, The Night They Invented Love. That's all the vocals she's doing. Yeah. Russell's doing all the full chorus and the wraparound layer vocals. And um, the night they invented love, but that's all him, but that's her doing the vocals. Gotcha. Which, which is uh, on that lyric part of it. So we have, still have that big question and, mark. Who did the, the bongos and, and or the congas and, and who did the who's saxophone? Player, man? I know. Because then the sax player... It fades in it. Like it segues. Well, who came up? Where did that come up with? Maybe it was created a year earlier from uh, "Beat the Clock" into uh, "My Voice." I don't know, or "My Voice" into number one song in heaven. Sparks, I think, created that. Do you think? Did they? I don't know, man. I mean, I don't know no, if either of them playing. Things. You want to go in on? How do you say it? Au revoir. Au revoir. Yeah, yeah. The, just uh, yeah. It, it's know, French. You I leave off the last few that. letters. Yeah. yeah, I know. That's kind of <laughs> sexy. Yeah. Now, that segue is fantastic. One of the but things that I really like about this album, um, or mini album, or whatever you want to call it, you know, is uh, basically you, you've got two sides. One side has, a, it's, it's a suite, and one long song fades into the other, and it's all you're dancing, dancing. And the other side does a similar thing. Of course, and you know, you've got the night they invented love and au revoir, and they fade in, and it's a, this, the song suite, and then you've got I want a man, which is its own thing. 
So I really, really appreciate the, the, the sax player, again, like we were saying, fantastic. Wish I knew. Well, I don't think he's uh, Lenny Pickett. From, you know who Lenny Pickett is? Uh, yeah, I know the name. He's uh, probably the greatest sax player in the world. He's a uh, Saturday Night Live band leader. He came from the band Tower Power. They're just monster born players. But yeah. I don't know where this cat came from. Yeah. Hey, 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 does Ron and Russell, maybe they could, who knows, maybe they could play know, some man. facts like that. But here's what I got on this one, you ready? Yeah. I'm going to say, and I'm going to jump off this one, and it's a question, because we know that all the background vocals are Russell, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say, she has nothing to do with this song whatsoever, one little bit, everything is Russell. Really? That's bold. You think it's all Russell yeah. singing? Yeah. Wow. I'm thinking it's all Russell on this one. It's just them pulling her chain, dude. They're just pulling her chain on this one. You've got to understand, there's nobody, woman, or that can hold a vocal or has a, has a vocal pattern like Russell. Like I said, she's got a raspy voice. She does good. But he is tying her and bringing her and just carrying her along through this with what she's doing. But I'm going... That's all, Russell. That's fine. How yeah. about that? Okay. Well, there wrong. it is. I'm wrong. I could be wrong. I'm putting it out. How about if Russell actually maybe get off their butt and want to say, come clean with... And they should, because this is an album. It's killer. It's such a killer album, man. It's so cool to hear you say that, because I, I don't hear that very often. I mean, I, I started really <laughs> listening to it about a month or so ago, and I was like, yeah, this... This shit really bangs. This is really good, uh, but it—it's—I mean, it, it didn't sound like sparks. Well, in parts, it sounded like sparks, but uh, <clears throat> in other ways, it not so much. Like yeah, because the way it's done, I think they—I think they did the drumming on their thing. They produced it. They did—it's everything with them, other than the little bit that they wrote and had her come into the studio and just do these overlays, hmm. and that's it. Uh, well, just uh, after Au Revoir, I mean, so like like I said before, it's like you've got these two sides, and there's a song suite on one side, there's a song suite on the other side. They both, you know, fade into each other, and then you've got I Want a Man at the end, which is its own thing. Uh, you know, it, and it was a standalone single. Do you, can you talk about that song and what you know about it? Well, let's finish it off. Absolutely, Mr. Healy. And, uh, Right there, I want a man. She does the vocals on that, but Russell's doing a lot again, rapping of the vocals, overlay. Um, the chorus, I want a man. That's her doing the chorus. But again, Russell just rapping in background. And here's a big question mark. I want a man, a little boy. You know that piece. I want a man, not a little boy. Yeah. And it and it fades out. I don't think that's no odd. There again, I hmm. think that might be Russell playing with us. Do you think that Ron and Russ wrote this for her, or had already written it, and were just waiting for someone to be their their voice and I their think they, uh, her wrote, face? Uh, probably, I want a man. When they figured, all right, here's how we're going to do this. So we're going to stick that in, and this. I want a man to make it more legit, so we can get this out and uh, do this album that we just discovered this great talent that I think we're not under contract 
not to uh, be able to release an album. Yeah. Number one, I haven't got held up for that year. Hey, this is our release. Let's do it this way. And in the Sparks tradition of pulling a leg, this is what we got, but they're still pulling a leg when this album should be, it's time to say, hey, it's us. This is what happened. Let's take, let's take, uh, Acclimates for how great this album is. Mm. And I think, <laughs> I'll tell you this, I love Terminal Jive, you know? You know, and again, Terminal Jive was weird because when I got into them in 1980, Terminal Jive just got released right when I got into them. Mm. And it took me almost two full years since it wasn't released in the U.S. Right. to actually finally get a copy of it. Right. I had a copy of uh, not that fucker before I got a copy (laughs) copy of Terminal Jive do you know who uh, uh, forgive me so I I don't know do you know who like who fronted the money for this album for uh, for Noel's was this under Marauder's thing his label or well I guess I don't think I don't know somebody just they might have just had the luck to go in there there's some backing obviously Virgin yeah, Virgin, right. They made picture discs on this thing. Yeah, yeah, Virgin, of course. It's one of the, it's the strangest, it's one of those strangest sports that they're going to come. It's one of the mysteries. Hey, these mysteries, okay? I'm surprised they're they, hanging around and around. I'm surprised they, they, they didn't bother <laughs> to try to. Yeah, I'm surprised, surprised they didn't that, bother to make, make a video. I mean, they did four videos for Number One in Heaven, and they're trying to promote this, you know, what they hoped was going to be an up-and-coming... Just because they were under contract with Gorgio Marauder that they weren't allowed to... This had to be done this way. And this was the way that they chose to do it. But like I said, they had more to do with this than obviously Terminal Giant. One thing I would love to know is what synthesizers they were using on this album. Because I know on Number One in Heaven... They had this monstrous Moog 3P, I believe it was. And there were very few of those, and they were very expensive. So if they were recording this whole thing in Los Angeles, you know, I'm thinking, well, either George Maroder, you know, loaned his mammoth, or they, you know, found something else. And, and of course, I, I've got no way of finding out that information. So I'm not sure if you know anything about that. No, because, you know, I tell you, we talk about, like, some of the... Uh studio guys like David Pace. Uh, yeah. I talk to um, Bill Champlin quite frequently about things. We're talking about Leslie Amps. You know who Bill Champlin is? Mm-hmm. He came in with um, David Foster with Chicago. He had his own band of Sons of Champlin. Uh, he wrote two Grammys for the uh, multi-Grammy award winner, Bill Champlin. But I mean, even he, I said, hey, he don't know about this stuff, but he doesn't know the old Leslie's. This was something that was just... Put this album next to Terminal Jive. Which one's better? Two different albums. Which would you rather listen to on any given day? God, two different albums, bro. Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. I'm not going to take that. I'm taking that uh, politically correct. (laughs) Because, again, I got into... I heard... Number one and having the first one, 
six months after, terminal drive it took me. This one in here, but I've got a feeling for each one. Mm. But let me say this. I'm going to do this. Number one in heaven, terminal drive it this. I'll do it this way. This is the, uh, the album out of the three of them that Sparks had more control of. That I think this is one of the Sparks albums than any three of them. I'll leave it at that. Do you think this should be considered a Sparks album? Huh? Do you think this should be considered a Sparks album in the canon? Absolutely. Absolutely a Sparks album. This is a Sparks album, dude. You know, we got Sparks, we got Womp That Sparks Sucker, we got Sparks uh, Hippopotamus, we got Sparks Don't Know. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, that's another thing where I laid these out for this thing. And I'm looking, she only really did three photo sessions. Mm. All these albums and all these 45s and all the photo sessions, because there's really nothing outside this. She took basically three photo sessions that they worked into this, and that's all we see of her. Yeah. You know, and that's it. You know, I'm not going to find anything about it on the thing. She thought it was it. Did and you know somebody there? I don't, I believe that name was created by Robert Russell. Did uh, you well, did you listen to uh, her uh, the next album she did with her band, the Red Wedge or whatever? Or I guess that was the name of the album. I can't. Yeah, the Red Wedge. I got it up there. I put it on a little bit, uh, but the, I just don't realize what her voice was. And now, okay, so when I go back and listen to this, what she's who. Where she fit in on this album, she's got a raspy voice. It's yeah. a raspy voice. Right on. Yeah. Cool, man. So, I mean, I think that pretty much sums it up for this particular album, and I'd love to talk to you so again. Why don't about... we get these down here at Disney World, bro? Oh, my God. Would love to. Well, I was huh? just talking to my wife earlier today, and uh, we're talking about uh, going up to. Northern Virginia for Thanksgiving, where her family lives, and uh, of course that's not all the way down there. But uh, often Where's our flights do do uh, a layover in Orlando, so maybe we should do that. Uh, Northern Virginia up there, Richmond area. Uh, it, uh it's cl- DC ish, like just south of DC. Yeah. My wife's a uh, emergency room doctor. She uh, she travels around. She's just working right outside there. Oh wow! So, she leaves me on there, and I do these silly interviews. And and this is my only life that I have. Yeah. So I thank you for calling me. Thank well, you for I you got a friend of mine. Appreciate you being here. I'd love to have you back on again and. You gave us a lot to, to chew on about this particular uh, particular album, uh, which I can find. Almost no information. Ah, yeah. Yes, hey, folks. Thanks for sticking around to the end with us. Uh, of course, I want to thank Monty Mallon uh, for another fantastic conversation. And uh, also a special thanks to uh, Jim Welland, who um, had a lot of interesting insight into the Noel album as well and has proven his bona fides as a true Sparks super ultra giga fan. Stay tuned, everybody. Uh, next episode, we are going to finally get to Terminal Jive. Dance, goddammit.